Caligula, Part Three, from the Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. Translated by Alexander Thompson and edited by T. Forrester. Caligula, Part 3. Having also sold in Gaul all the clothes, furniture, slaves, and even freedmen belonging to his sisters, at prodigious prices, after their condemnation, he was so much delighted with his gains that he sent to Rome for all the furniture of the old palace, pressing for its conveyance all the carriages let to hire in the city, with the horses and mules belonging to the bakers, so that they often wanted bread at Rome. And many who had suits at law in progress lost their causes, because they could not make their appearance in due time according to their recognizances. In the sale of this furniture, every artifice of fraud and imposition was employed, Sometimes he would rail at the bidders for being niggardly, and ask them if they were not ashamed to be richer than he was. At another, he would affect to be sorry that the property of princes should be passing into the hands of private persons. He had found out that a rich provincial had given two hundred thousand sesterces to his chamberlains for an underhand invitation to his table, and he was much pleased to find that honour valued at so high a rate. The day following, as the same person was sitting at the sale, he sent him some bauble, for which he told him he must pay two hundred thousand sesterces, and that he should sup with Caesar upon his own invitation. He levied new taxes, and such as were never before known, at first by the publicans, but afterwards, because their profit was enormous, by centurions, and tribunes of the Praetorian Guards, no description of property or persons being exempted from some kind of tax or other. For all eatables brought into the city, a certain excise was exacted. For all lawsuits or trials in whatever court, the fortieth part of the sum in dispute, and such as were convicted of compromising litigations, were made liable to a penalty. Out of the daily wages of the porters he received an eighth, and from the gains of common prostitutes what they received for one favour granted. There was a clause in the law that all boards who kept women for prostitution or sale should be liable to pay, and that marriage itself should not be exempted. These taxes being imposed, but the act by which they were levied never submitted to public inspection, great grievances were experienced from the want of sufficient knowledge of the law. At length, on the urgent demands of the Roman people, he published the law. But it was written in a very small hand, and posted up in a corner, so that no one could make a copy of it. To leave no sort of gain untried, he opened brothels in the Palatium, with a number of cells furnished suitably to the dignity of the place in which married women and free-born youths were ready for the reception of visitors. 
he sent likewise his nomenclators about the forums and courts to invite people of all ages, the old as well as the young, to his brothel, to come and satisfy their lusts. And he was ready to lend his customers money upon interest, clerks attending to take down their names in public as persons who contributed to the emperor's revenue. Another method of raising money, which he thought not below his notice, was gaming, which by the help of lying and perjury he turned to considerable account. Leaving once the management of his play to his partner in the game, he stepped into the court, and observing two rich Roman knights passing by, he ordered them immediately to be seized, and their estates confiscated. Then returning in great glee, he boasted that he had never made a better throw in his life. After the birth of his daughter, complaining of his poverty, and the burdens to which he was subjected, not only as an emperor, but a father, he made a general collection for her maintenance and fortune. He likewise gave public notice that he would receive New Year's gifts on the calends of January following, and accordingly stood in the vestibule of his house to clutch the presents which people of all ranks threw down before him by handfuls and lapfuls. At last, being seized with an invincible desire of feeling money, taking off his slippers, he repeatedly walked over great heaps of gold coin spread upon the spacious floor, and then laying himself down, rolled his whole body in gold over and over again. Only once in his life did he take an active part in military affairs, and then not from any set purpose, but during his journey to Mervania, to see the grove and river of Clitumnus. Being recommended to recruit a body of Batavians who attended him, he resolved upon an expedition into Germany. Immediately he drew together several legions and auxiliary forces from all quarters, and made everywhere new levies with the utmost rigour. Collecting supplies of all kinds, such as never had been assembled upon the like occasion, he set forward on his march, and pursued it sometimes with so much haste and precipitation, that the Praetorian cohorts were obliged, contrary to custom, to pack their standards on horses or mules, and so follow him. At other times he would march so slow and luxuriously, that he was carried in a litter by eight men, ordering the roads to be swept by the people of the neighbouring towns, and sprinkled with water to lay the dust. On arriving at the camp, in order to show himself an active general and severe disciplinarian, he cashiered the lieutenants who came up late with the auxiliary forces from different quarters. In reviewing the army, he deprived of their companies most of the centurions of the first rank, who had now served their legal time in the wars, and some whose time would have expired in a few days, alleging against them their age and infirmity, and railing at the covetous disposition of the rest of them, he reduced the bounty due to those who had served out their time to the sum of six thousand sesterces. Though he only received the submission of Adminius, the son of Cunobeline, 
a British king, who, being driven from his native country by his father, came over to him with a small body of troops, yet, as if the whole island had been surrendered to him, he dispatched magnificent letters to Rome, ordering the bearers to proceed in their carriages directly up to the Forum and the Senate House, and not to deliver their letters but to the consuls in the Temple of Mars, and in the presence of a full assembly of the senators. Soon after this, there being no hostilities, he ordered a few Germans of his guard to be carried over and placed in concealment on the other side of the Rhine, and word to be brought him after dinner that an enemy was advancing with great impetuosity. This being accordingly done, he immediately threw himself, with his friends, and a party of the Praetorian knights, into the adjoining wood, where lopping branches from the trees, and forming trophies of them, he returned by torchlight, upbraiding those who did not follow him with timorousness and cowardice. But he presented the companions, and sharers of his victory, with crowns of a new form, and under a new name, having the sun, moon, and stars represented on them and which he called exploratorii. Again, some hostages were by his order taken from the school and privately sent off, upon notice of which he immediately rose from table, pursued them with the cavalry as if they had run away, and coming up with them brought them back in fetters, proceeding to an extravagant pitch of ostentation likewise in this military comedy. Upon his again sitting down to table, it being reported to him that the troops were all reassembled, he ordered them to sit down as they were, in their armour, animating them in the words of that well-known verse of Virgil, Durate, et vos met rebus servate secundis. Bear up, and save yourselves for better days. In the meantime, he reprimanded the senate and people of Rome in a very severe proclamation, for revelling and frequenting the diversions of the circus and theatre, and enjoying themselves at their villas, whilst their emperor was fighting and exposing himself to the greatest dangers. At last, as if resolved to make war in earnest, he drew up his army upon the shore of the ocean, with his ballistae and other engines of war, and while no one could imagine what he intended to do, on a sudden commanded them to gather up the sea-shells, and fill their helmets and the folds of their dress with them, calling them the spoils of the ocean due to the capital and the palatium. As a monument of his success, he raised a lofty tower, upon which, as at Pharos, he ordered lights to be burnt in the night-time, for the direction of ships at sea, and then promising the soldiers a donative of a hundred denarii a man, as if he had surpassed the most eminent examples of generosity. Go your ways, said he, and be merry. Go, ye are rich. In making preparations for his triumph, besides the prisoners and deserters from the barbarian armies, he picked out the men of greatest stature in all Gaul such as he said were fittest to grace a triumph, with some of the chiefs, and reserved them to appear in the procession, obliging them not only to dye their hair yellow, and let it grow long, but to learn the German language, and assume the names commonly used in that country. 
He ordered likewise the galleys in which he had entered the ocean to be conveyed to Rome a great part of the way by land, and wrote to his controllers in the city to make proper preparations for a triumph against his arrival at as small expense as possible, but on a scale such as had never been seen before since they had full power over the property of every one. Before he left the province, he formed a design of the most horrid cruelty to massacre the legions which had mutinied upon the death of Augustus, for seizing and detaining by force his father, Germanicus, their commander, and himself, then an infant in the camp. Though he was with great difficulty dissuaded from this rash attempt, yet neither the most urgent entreaties nor representations could prevent him from persisting in the design of decimating these legions. Accordingly, he ordered them to assemble unarmed, without so much as their swords, and then surrounded them with armed horse. But finding that many of them, suspecting that violence was intended, were making off to arm in their own defence, he quitted the assembly as fast as he could, and immediately marched for Rome, bending now all his fury against the Senate, whom he publicly threatened to divert the general attention from the clamour excited by his disgraceful conduct. Amongst other pretexts of offence, he complained that he was defrauded of a triumph, which was justly his due, though he had just before forbidden, upon pain of death, any honour to be decreed him. In his march he was waited upon by deputies from the senatorian order, entreating him to hasten his return. He replied to them, I will come, I will come, and this with me, striking at the same time the hilt of his sword. He issued likewise this proclamation, I am coming, but for those only who wish for me, the equestrian order and the people for I shall no longer treat the Senate as their fellow-citizen or prince. He forbade any of the senators to come to meet him, and either abandoning or deferring his triumph, he entered the city in ovation on his birthday. Within four months from this period, he was slain, after he had perpetrated enormous crimes, and while he was meditating the execution, if possible, of still greater. He had entertained a design of removing to Antium, and afterwards to Alexandria, having first cut off the flower of the equestrian and senatorian orders. This is placed beyond all question by two books which were found in his cabinet under different titles, one being called the sword, and the other the dagger. They both contained private marks and the names of those who were devoted to death. There was also found a large chest filled with a variety of poisons, which being afterwards thrown into the sea by order of Claudius, are said to have so infected the waters that the fish were poisoned and cast dead by the tide upon the neighbouring shores. He was tall, of a pale complexion, ill-shaped, his neck and legs very slender, his eyes and temples hollow, his brows broad and knit, his hair thin, and the crown of the head bald. 
The other parts of his body were much covered with hair. On this account it was reckoned a capital crime for any person to look down from above, as he was passing by, or so much as to name a goat. His countenance, which was naturally hideous and frightful, he purposely rendered more so, forming it before a mirror into the most horrible contortions. He was crazy, both in body and mind, being subject, when a boy, to the falling sickness. When he arrived at the age of manhood, he endured fatigue tolerably well, but still occasionally he was liable to a faintness, during which he remained incapable of any effort. He was not insensible of the disorder of his mind, and sometimes had thoughts of retiring to clear his brain. It is believed that his wife Sezonia administered to him a love potion which threw him into a frenzy. What most of all disordered him was want of sleep, for he seldom had more than three or four hours rest in a night, and even then his sleep was not sound, but disturbed by strange dreams, fancying, among other things, that a form representing the ocean spoke to him. Being therefore often weary with lying awake so long, sometimes he sat up in his bed, at others walked in the longest porticoes about the house, and from time to time invoked and looked out for the approach of day. To this crazy constitution of his mind may, I think, very justly be ascribed two faults which he had, of a nature directly repugnant one to the other, namely an excessive confidence and the most abject timidity. For he, who affected so much to despise the gods, was ready to shut his eyes and wrap up his head in his cloak at the slightest storm of thunder and lightning. And if it was violent, he got up and hid himself under his bed. In his visit to Sicily, after ridiculing many strange objects which that country affords, he ran away suddenly in the night from Messini, terrified by the smoke and rumbling at the summit of Mount Etna. And though in words he was very valiant against the barbarians, yet upon passing a narrow defile in Germany in his light car, surrounded by a strong body of his troops, someone happening to say, There would be no small consternation amongst us if an enemy were to appear. He immediately mounted his horse and rode towards the bridges in great haste, but finding them blocked up with camp followers and baggage wagons, he was in such a hurry that he caused himself to be carried in men's hands over the heads of the crowd. Soon afterwards, upon hearing that the Germans were again in rebellion, he prepared to quit Rome and equipped a fleet, comforting himself with this consideration, that if the enemy should prove victorious and possess themselves of the heights of the Alps, as the Cimbri had done, or of the city, as the Senones formerly did, he should still have in reserve the transmarine provinces. Hence it was, I suppose, that it occurred to his assassins to invent the story intended to pacify the troops who mutinied at his death, that he had laid violent hands upon himself in a fit of terror occasioned by the news brought him of the defeat of his army. 
in the fashion of his clothes, shoes, and all the rest of his dress. He did not wear what was either national, or properly civic, or peculiar to the male sex, or appropriate to mere mortals. He often appeared abroad in a short coat of stout cloth, richly embroidered and blazing with jewels, in a tunic with sleeves and with bracelets upon his arms, sometimes all in silks and habited like a woman, at other times in the crepidae or buskins, sometimes in the sort of shoes used by the light-armed soldiers, or in the sock used by women, and commonly with a golden beard fixed to his chin, holding in his hand a thunderbolt, a trident, or a caduceus, marks of distinction belonging to the gods only. Sometimes, too, he appeared in the habit of Venus, he wore very commonly the triumphal ornaments, even before his expedition, and sometimes the breastplate of Alexander the Great, taken out of his coffin. With regard to the liberal sciences, he was little conversant in philology, but applied himself with assiduity to the study of eloquence being indeed, in point of enunciation, tolerably elegant and ready. And in his perorations, when he was moved to anger, there was an abundant flow of words and periods. In speaking, his action was vehement, and his voice so strong that he was heard at a great distance. When winding up an harangue, he threatened to draw the sword of his lucubration, holding a loose and smooth style in such contempt that he said Seneca, who was then much admired, wrote only detached essays, and that his language was nothing but sand, without line. He often wrote answers to the speeches of successful orators, and employed himself in composing accusations or vindications of eminent persons who were impeached before the Senate and gave his vote for or against the party accused, according to his success in speaking, inviting the equestrian order, by proclamation, to hear him. He also zealously applied himself to the practice of several other arts of different kinds, such as fencing, charioteering, singing, and dancing. In the first of these he practised with the weapons used in war, and drove the chariot in circuses built in several places. He was so extremely fond of singing and dancing, that he could not refrain in the theatre from singing with the tragedians, and imitating the gestures of the actors, either by way of applause or correction. A night exhibition which he had ordered the day he was slain, was thought to be intended for no other reason than to take the opportunity afforded by the licentiousness of the season to make his first appearance upon the stage. Sometimes also he danced in the night. Summoning once to the Palatium, in the second watch of the night, three men of consular rank, who feared the words from the message, he placed them on the proscenium of the stage, 
and then suddenly came bursting out with a loud noise of flutes and castanets, dressed in a mantle and tunic reaching down to his heels. Having danced out a song, he retired. Yet he who had acquired such dexterity in other exercises never learnt to swim. Those for whom he once conceived a regard, he favoured even to madness. He used to kiss Mnester, the pantomimic actor, publicly in the theatre, and if any person made the least noise while he was dancing, he would order him to be dragged from his seat and scourged him with his own hand. A Roman knight, once making some bustle, he sent him, by a centurion, an order to depart forthwith for Ostia, and carry a letter from him to King Ptolemy in Mauritania. The letter was comprised in these words, Do neither good nor harm to the bearer. He made some gladiators, captains of his German guards. He deprived the gladiators called Mermelones of some of their arms. One Columbus coming off with the victory in a combat, but being slightly wounded, he ordered some poison to be infused in the wound, which he thence called Columbinum, for thus it was certainly named with his own hand in a list of other poisons. He was so extravagantly fond of the party of charioteers, whose colours were green, that he supped and lodged for some time constantly in the stable where their horses were kept. At a certain revel he made a present of two millions of sesterces to one Cythicus, a driver of a chariot. The day before the Circensian games he used to send his soldiers to enjoin silence in the neighbourhood, that the repose of his horse in Cittatus might not be disturbed. For this favourite animal, besides a marble stable, an ivory manger, purple housings and a jewelled frontlet, he appointed a house, with a retinue of slaves and fine furniture, for the reception of such as were invited in the horse's name to sup with him. It is even said that he intended to make him consul. In this frantic and savage career, numbers had formed designs for cutting him off. But one or two conspiracies being discovered, and others postponed for want of opportunity, at last two men concerted a plan together, and accomplished their purpose. Not without the privity of some of the greatest favourites amongst his freedmen, and the prefects of the Praetorian Guards, because, having been named, though falsely, as concerned in one conspiracy against him, they perceived that they were suspected, and become objects of his hatred. For he had immediately endeavoured to render them obnoxious to the soldiery, drawing his sword, and declaring that he would kill himself if they thought him worthy of death. And ever after, he was continually accusing them to one another, and setting them all mutually at variance. The conspirators, having resolved to fall upon him as he returned at noon from the Palatine Games, Cassius Caria, tribune of the Praetorian Guards, claimed the part of making the onset. This Caria was now an elderly man, and had been often reproached by Caius for effeminacy. 
when he came for the watchword, the latter would give Priapus, or Venus, and if on any occasion he returned thanks, would offer him his hand to kiss, making with his fingers an obscene gesture. His approaching fate was indicated by many prodigies. The statue of Jupiter at Olympia, which he had ordered to be taken down and brought to Rome, suddenly burst out into such a violent fit of laughter that the machines employed in the work giving way, the workmen took to their heels. When this accident happened, there came up a man named Cassius, who said that he was commanded in a dream to sacrifice a bull to Jupiter. The capital at Capua was struck with lightning upon the Ides of March, as was also, at Rome, the apartment of the chief porter of the Palatium. Some construed the latter into a presage that the master of the place was in danger from his own guards, and the other they regarded as a sign that an illustrious person would be cut off, as had happened before on that day. Scylla the astrologer, being consulted by him respecting his nativity, assured him that death would unavoidably and speedily befall him. The oracle of fortune at Antium likewise forewarned him of Cassius, on which account he had given orders for putting to death Cassius Longinus, at that time proconsul of Asia, not considering that Chiria bore also that name. The day preceding his death, he dreamt that he was standing in heaven, near the throne of Jupiter, who, giving him a push with the great toe of his right foot, he fell headlong upon the earth. Some things which happened the very day of his death, and only a little before it, were likewise considered as ominous presages of that event. Whilst he was at sacrifice, he was bespattered with the blood of a flamingo. At Menesta, the pantomimic actor performed in a play which the tragedian Neoptolemus had formerly acted at the games in which Philip, the king of Macedon, was slain. And in the piece called Laureolus, in which the principal actor, running out in a hurry and falling, vomited blood, several of the inferior actors, vying with each other to give the best specimen of their art, made the whole stage flow with blood. A spectacle had been purposed to be performed that night, in which the fables of the infernal regions were to be represented by Egyptians and Ethiopians. On the ninth of the calends of February, at about the seventh hour of the day, after hesitating whether he should rise to dinner, as his stomach was disordered by what he had eaten the day before, at last, by the advice of his friends, he came forth. In the vaulted passage through which he had to pass were some boys of noble extraction, who had been brought from Asia to act upon the stage, waiting for him in a private corridor, and he stopped to see and speak to them. And had not the leader of the party said that he was suffering from cold, he would have gone back and made them act immediately. Respecting what followed, Two different accounts are given. Some say that whilst he was speaking to the boys, Carrier came behind him and gave him a heavy blow on the neck with his sword, first crying out, Take this! 
that then a tribune by name Cornelius Sabinus, another of the conspirators, ran him through the breast. Others say that the crowd being kept at a distance by some centurions who were in the plot, Sabinus came according to custom for the word, and that Caius gave him Jupiter, upon which Chiria cried out, Be it so! and then on his looking round, clove one of his jaws with a blow. As he lay on the ground, crying out that he was still alive, the rest dispatched him with thirty wounds. For the word agreed upon among them all was, Strike again! Some likewise ran their swords through his privy parts. Upon the first bustle, the litter-bearers came running in with their poles to his assistance, and immediately afterwards his German bodyguards, who killed some of the assassins, and also some senators who had no concern in the affair. He lived twenty-nine years, and reigned three years, ten months, and eight days. His body was carried privately into the Lamian gardens, where it was half burnt upon a pile hastily raised, and then had some earth carelessly thrown over it. It was afterwards disinterred by his sisters, on their return from banishment, burnt to ashes, and buried. Before this was done, it is well known that the keepers of the gardens were greatly disturbed by apparitions, and that not a night passed without some terrible alarm or other in the house where he was slain, until it was destroyed by fire. His wife Sazonia was killed with him, being stabbed by a centurion, and his daughter had her brains knocked out against a wall. Of the miserable condition of those times, any person may easily form an estimate from the following circumstances. When his death was made public, it was not immediately credited. People entertained a suspicion that a report of his being killed had been contrived and spread by himself with a view of discovering how they stood affected towards him. Nor had the conspirators fixed upon any one to succeed him. The senators were so unanimous in their resolution to assert the liberty of their country that the consuls assembled them at first, not in the usual place of meeting, because it was named after Julius Caesar, but in the capital. Some proposed to abolish the memory of the Caesars, and level their temples with the ground. It was particularly remarked on this occasion, that all the Caesars, who had the prinomen of Caius, died by the sword, from the Caius Caesar who was slain in the times of Cinna. End of Caligula Recording by Andrew Coleman